0: The soul. That's the soul and Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host Danny Bessner. Uh, and we're very lucky to welcome back to the program uh returning champion alex thurston alex is assistant professor of political science at the university of cincinnati uh he studies uh, islam in west africa west african politics uh we had him on you may recall a few weeks ago to talk about Mali. uh he is back to help us unpack the nigerian presidential election alex thanks for coming back thanks a lot for having me uh so uh First things first, a little bit of self promotion here. Alex wrote a piece previewing the Nigerian election for me at Foreign Exchanges. Uh, if you want to check that out, we'll have a link to it in the show description. But Alex, why don't you, why don't we start with, since we uh, shamefully have not done really an episode about Nigeria, give people uh, the, the background to this election and, uh, you know, no pressure. You have like three minutes to talk about all the challenges facing the next <laughs> Nigerian president. Uh, no, seriously. I mean, you know, give people some sense of of what overall is is the the situation in Nigeria and what challenges await uh, the new president.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I think you know Nigeria is often called one of the most important countries in Africa. I would call it one of the most important countries in the world. I mean. Probably well over 200 million people, um, on track by certain projections to be the third most populous country in the world, maybe by the middle of this century, displacing the United States for that spot and a, a really important potential kind of regional power, um, at points, the largest economy in Africa. Anyway, the list, the list goes on and on. A huge center for, for cultural production, for films, for literature, music, so forth. Um, yeah, so I mean in terms of how we got here the the country was under military rule for a lot of the period from 1966 to 1999 um with with a few kind of civilian um efforts at at you know multi-party democracy but then since 1999 it's been um holding regular elections um some of which have been you know a lot cleaner than others some of which have been you know really problematic and and you know marred and and seemingly fraudulent uh for, from 1999 to 2015, the, a single party, the People's Democratic Party, dominated the presidency and a lot of the governorships. Uh, since 2015, there's been a new party in power, a kind of coalition of the old opposition parties called the All Progressives Congress. And so that brings us then to, to 2023. I should say the Nigerian political system is modeled somewhat on the United States system and, and resembles it in certain ways. So Nigeria is a federation, um, it has uh, a, a very strong presidency where presidents can serve up to two four-year terms. Uh, so, you know, uh, some basic resemblances to the United States. Uh, so this election, the outgoing president, Muhammadu Buhari, was term limited. But somebody from his own party, um, Bola won won the election, at least according to the official results.
0: So I, I want to get into the election and the, the controversies uh, about how it was conducted, but let's talk a little bit about the campaign. What are, what are the big issues? Um, you know, obviously people are probably familiar with Boko Haram, but there are a uh, myriad other armed conflicts, open armed conflicts going on in other parts of Nigeria. Uh, and then beyond the, the sort of, military or law enforcement angle? What are, what are some of the other things that that the candidates were talking about?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, security was on a lot of voters' minds. Obviously, I mean, there was, there's, there's the Boko Haram challenge, which is large, or the successor groups to Boko Haram, as, as you know well, Derek. I mean, the, the, you know, that's in the Northeast. Um, although sometimes reaching into other parts of the country, there's the, um, uh, a crisis of armed banditry, especially in the Northwest. There's, uh, some really murky violence in the Southeast, some of which seems to be committed by ethnic separatists, some of which is maybe committed by opportunists. Um, and then there's been criminality and particularly kidnappings through a lot of the country, um, even some really, really brazen kidnappings, um, for example, targeting passengers on trains and so forth. So security insecurity is a big issue on people's minds. The economy also on people's minds, um, you know, there's been inflation of of over 20%. A lot of months recently, uh, right on the eve of the elections, there was an effort by the authorities to introduce new banknotes, which proved really chaotic and left a lot of people with shortages of cash. Uh, so the economy was really on people's minds. And then, you know, I, I think, and I don't want to like overstate this, I mean, because I think sometimes ethnicity and religion is taken as like sort of, too much of a a shortcut to understanding Nigeria, but ethnicity and religion really do matter. And so, you know, people were, um, you know, there's there's concerns about um, where different ethnic groups fit into the the present and future of the country. Um, Some people vote along religious lines. So there was, you know, identity matters a lot. Without necessarily determining the whole, you know, picture, identity still really matters in the country.
0: Let's talk about, the candidates, as you already mentioned, bulletinubu won, and again, I want to talk about the the election itself and the the concerns about how it was conducted but um, who is bulletinubu and and uh you know what is his background, what do we know about him uh, and talk a little bit about the two other candidates, peter obi and antiku Abubakar as well
1: sure, so I mean one. One issue or one concern about, you know, all three candidates, but in a sense, especially like Tinubu and Atiku, as he's usually called, is age. So Tinubu and Atiku were both over seventy. Um, Obi is something like sixty-one. So he was kind of like the youth candidate, but this was only in in relative terms. And it's a really young country, like a lot of African countries. Tinubu specifically, so he was he was an accountant by training, and then kind of began to rise in politics in the 90s, uh, although Nigeria was still under military rule for a lot of the 90s. So he spent some time in exile and then came back in 1998 as as military rule was starting to, to wind down and then was elected governor of Lagos in 1999 um, and served two terms there. Lagos is, you know, the most populous city, the most populous state, uh, the commercial epicenter of the country. Um, often, you know, it's the former national capital. Uh, and Tinubu you know, He's a really, I think, a complex figure. I mean, in some ways, you could call him left of center. Uh, He's been given credit sometimes for uh, a lot of change in Lagos. So, you know, um, a lot of effective tax collection, infrastructure development, um, you know, uh, changing how the civil service works, kind of um, updating it and, and making it more efficient. But then he's also been accused of, of you know, tremendous kind of corruption and what Nigerians call godfatherism, right? So sort of functioning as, as a machine politician, you know, in a really ruthless way. Um, from Lagos, then he he built a power base that encompassed a lot of the southwest of the country, uh, even after he left office in 2007. And then he was a key architect of, of what became the ruling party, so the All progressive Congress, which formed in 2013. Uh, and he was key to the victory of, of Buhari, the current outgoing president in 2015, and then he became the candidate of the party in in 2023, and and has now won.
0: And what what do we what can we say about uh, the the backgrounds of uh, Atiku and and uh, Peter Obi?
1: Yeah, so I mean, Atiku was was vice president from 1999 to 2007, so during the same period that Tinubu was the governor of Lagos. Um and was accused, you know, seriously accused of, of corruption during that time. I mean, including in cases that reached into the United States. Um, and, and you know, really had, I think, left office under under a cloud and then tried basically in every election going forward to be um, either president or a major party nominee and so forth. And and then was the runner-up against Buhari in 2019 uh, and now has been the runner-up again in, in 2023. Uh, Obi then uh, campaigned this time under the the Labour Party um but was a latecomer to that party and basically only switched to it because of losing out in the in the primary of the People's Democratic Party or PDP losing out to um to to Atiku um Obi became then this kind of just electrifying candidate right and and incarnated a lot of the hopes of uh, youth, of of, you know, entrepreneurs, of of others, of the you know the middle class, a lot of, you know, um wealthier Nigerians, I think came to incarnate this vision of of reform and change and uh you know kind of managerial competence. I mean some rhetoric that's familiar from US elections, right? Of kind of taking private sector expertise and applying it to the public sector to to have a more efficient kind of presidency. I think, I mean here's where I would differ with his supporters I guess I think that he was a conventional politician who who you know managed through skillful campaigning and and through uh kind of being in the right place at the right time to to become this kind of symbol I don't I think his presidency had he won would would have disappointed his own supporters um but be that as it may he in any case it's it's clear that he he became this kind of symbol right for for a lot of the country a, a symbol of of change
0: this, it was an interesting dynamic because, um, uh, everything that I read suggested that Obi was like this, you know, Obi's campaign was this freight train of momentum. He was the most popular candidate. Everybody was, you know, uh, turning out young people were enthusiastic. Um, but you wrote in your piece that he was unlikely to win because his party infrastructure wasn't, uh, just wasn't mature enough. And, and Tanubu, uh, as the, the candidate of the ruling party had, an edge there can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and what do you think explains uh, the the result here tanubu uh, apparently winning um, you know is there some reason to think there were uh, shenanigans and again we can get into the irregularities the delays in voting and the uh, the delays in the count that people have have brought up uh, but I'm just curious what what explains Obi not just not winning but finishing 3rd after all this kind of uh, you know seeming uh, seem to be a lot of buzz around his campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that you know this is something people may be dissecting for for a long time. I mean I could give a couple of different explanations some of which might fit together and and or or which could work kind of on their own depending on one's point of view. I mean I think I think some people might just start with with ethnic and religious factors, right? And and you know, some Nigerian friends have said that they felt, you know, voting proceeded largely along religious and ethnic lines. Obi comes out of comes from the Igbo ethnic group, which is the third largest ethnic group in the country, so you know, a major major ethnic group but not not a, you know, not a majority or or even a strong plurality. Um also Christian uh you know, and and it's complicated to assess the religious demographics, but, but Christians do seem to be a slight minority in the country. Um, and then, yeah, I think, so I think that explanation could get you maybe part of the way. I think, though, that the party infrastructures, as I mentioned in the piece, right, and as you were saying, like, I think that that is a big factor as well. I mean, I think that, and now I'm going to sound more and more cynical, but I think that um, intra-elite deals are a bigger determinant of, the outcome than, than popular will. Um, so I think that, you know, control, if a party controls governorships, if it has senators, if it has kind of a big network and a big machine, I think this is, you know, a, a key ingredient in winning. And I think that Sinabu laid, you know, extremely careful groundwork over many years to, to rise to the presidency. Um, and I think that without a major party infrastructure that, that one could not compete with that. I mean, there's also then the issue of just like the, you know, reputed personal wealth of, of Tinubu and, and Atiku, right, which seems to be on a level that, that Obi couldn't match, you know, either personally or, or with the resources of the, the relatively small Labour Party.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what happened. Uh, there have been concerns raised uh, about delays in voting. I know the election was supposed to take place on Saturday, and in some parts of the country it was extended into Sunday. Um, I, I believe there were scattered reports of violence, but it sounded like everything went, uh, you know, more, maybe more peacefully than, it, than might have been expected. Uh, and yet there were these lengthy logistical delays. There, there's been alleged that there were also delays in the counting. What's sort of fueling, uh, you know, there's been obviously a, a rejection of Tanubu's victory on the part of the, the opposition. What's, what's driving that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the concerns are are quite legitimate. I think that you know, I think it's possible. So I I think there I think it's highly likely that there was some some tampering in Tinubu's favor, which doesn't mean that the other candidates might not have been trying to tamper as well. Like if he's if he's guilty of that, it doesn't mean that the others are necessarily um, innocent of efforts to to tamper on their own. Um, Nigerian presidential elections can go to a runoff um, if candidates don't meet you know certain thresholds, and I think that. So Tinubu ended up winning with a with a plurality. I think if there was rigging on his behalf, then it was it was probably done not to create some like impression of a super majority, like you know Bashar al-Assad in Syria or something like that. But I think it was done to to avoid the runoff and to have a clear sort of victory by plurality. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you said, there was some violence, but it wasn't it wasn't I don't think decisive. There were concerns in the lead up because there was a lot of violence in different parts of the country, especially in the southwest, and you know attacks on. Uh, election workers and so forth. But I think, you know, the bigger determinants of the problems were were technical. So the delays, like you said, you know, polling stations not opening on time, voting having to be extended in places. And then there's what's called the bimodal voter accreditation system, which is kind of a, a platform that works by recognizing um, fingerprints and, and facial features. And this was the first time that this was rolled out. And so the, the big concern you know, to simplify greatly, is is that this was used to to do fraud, right? That that you know, electronic counts didn't match up with the uh, with the actual will of the voters as expressed at the at the polling station, um, and so the the INEC, the, the Independent National Electoral Commission, has been accused of of rigging on Tinubu's behalf, um, using the machines and and you know, even more sort of blatant. Issues of election interference have been have been reported to. So, you know, journalists, I mean, from the Financial Times, from others said that, you know, that they saw things happening right in front of them, you know, ballot boxes being being taken and so forth. So it seems if there was fraud, and I think that it's highly likely there was, then it involved a mix of kind of old school, you know, brazen interference plus some some possible electronic tampering
0: what's been the response so far from uh, uh, obi and atiku i know atiku had a march uh, in abuja uh, maybe just yesterday um has there been any uh, I, uh, obi's talked about challenging the results in court there was a uh, even a, a briefly some some sort of court motion filed by a, a few states that they then withdrew um what what's the path here for either of these uh, either the these guys to to challenge the outcome and is there any conceivable realistic way forward that could actually see the the election results revisited
1: no i don't think so i'd be i'd be shocked i mean i think that it's it's common to go to the courts right and and obi and atiku have have wanted to go through the courts and you know and i think that could go, that could go on for a while i mean even now there's some wrangling Essentially, between them and INEC about these um, bimodal voter accreditation systems, because uh, in Nigeria they usually have elections kind of staggered. So on March eleventh, they're going to have the the state elections, so the um, governorships and the state houses of assembly. So INEC has said it wants to kind of reconfigure these these bimodal voter accreditation systems. Uh, in advance of the gubernatorial elections, the the opposition camp has said, wait a second, this this looks like you're trying to sort of erase some data. And, and the, the opposition camp has had, camps have had, I believe a court had cleared them to kind of audit the electronic records. So anyway, so now there's wrangling over, over the, the issue of transparency. But I think, no, I mean, so there's been you know, court challenges to presidential elections in the past, but they've all been unsuccessful. And I think they're, they're going to be unsuccessful this time. And I think in particular, international recognition of the results, um, sometimes more enthusiastically than others, I think that that has kind of sealed Tinubu's kind of uh, status as as the president-elect. There's, there's court challenges, including successful ones at the state level all the time. So sometimes courts will order rerun elections, or they'll, you know, there's been impeachments of, of governors and so forth. So at the state level, it's a different game, but at the presidential level, there wouldn't be a precedent that I'm aware of for throwing out the results or doing a rerun.
0: Let's talk about the international angle. Uh, you brought that up. Uh, I saw there was a piece in foreign policy, I think just yesterday, uh, you know, I say yesterday, I don't know, this interview is going to come out probably next week, so it'll have been a few days. Uh, but as we're recording this, there was a piece that came out recently in foreign policy that that questioned the Biden administration's decision to really, it seemed like jump in very fast and very hard to say, you know, congratulations to Bolotinubo. Uh, this was a, you know, shining example of democracy and freedom. Uh, you know, whatever. I mean, it was very effusive and seemed like it got out ahead of a lot of independent observers who noted some of the things you've mentioned, the delays, the logistics, the, 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 you know, irregularities. Um, I'm curious if you kind of have, have parsed the U.S. response here and why the the administration would have felt the the need to do this and kind of put its foot down. And also, what is the effect of that? How important? How much weight does something like the U.S. imprimatur of legitimacy uh, give to a to an election outcome like this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking this might come up, and and so yeah, I have the some of the statements in front of me. So, I mean, you know, I, I think the U S response has been a little bit, I don't want to say like chaotic, but a, li- a little, bit disjointed because so on, on March 1st, you had a statement from Ned Price, right? The state department spokesman that was a bit, as you say, sort of like congratulatory. A lot of people felt that it had been rushed. I mean, Tinubu's victory. So the election was on um, the 25th, but the, 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 um actual sort of victory for Tinubu wasn't announced until the night of the, the 28th slash March 1st. And so then the State Department came out with a statement pretty quickly, you know, and I think it was, this was sort of like the standard mix of kind of congratulation and what I would call a bit of condescension, um, you know, and, and calling on people for restraint and so forth and saying, you know, take your challenges to the courts, don't take them to the streets. Then the ambassador though came out on March 5th. And I think this is kind of, you know, responding to, to the mounting criticisms of the election, of the U.S. response, of the international response generally, and said, you know, flat out, she says in, in one paragraph, it is clear that the electoral process as a whole on February 25th failed to meet Nigerians' expectations. So I don't know if this is kind of a difference between, you know, the, the embassy and, and headquarters, or whether this is, I think it's probably more, because I'm sure she had to get it cleared, I think it's probably more the U.S. adjusting a bit as the the criticisms mounted, but yeah, I think I think the U.S. is is torn. I mean, I think that well, a I think I should say, I mean, I think despite Nigeria's importance within Africa within the world, I don't think it's as much of a priority as it should be. I think Africa as a whole is is sort of you know devalued. I think that the um, the priority is often on stability, quote unquote, um, rather than on democracy promotion or or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I think there was sort of, I would guess that the thinking was kind of like, well, this was a messy election, let's, let's, but we're going to end up working with Tinubu, So let's go ahead and get things off on the right foot. Let's, let's recognize him. And then let's, you know, note that there were some concerns and move on. I think now maybe one could take the ambassador's statement as a bit of, I don't know, damage control is probably too strong, but, but sort of, you know, adjusting a little bit the tone saying, okay, we recognize that there's you know, uh, irregularities or or that there's anger over this. I think, I mean, the common element across both statements, though, is, is sort of almost pleading with people not to engage in violence, which again comes back to the kind of stability, you know, priority.
0: I mean, the, the second statement, the ambassador statement, seemed almost like closing uh, the door after the the barn door after the horse was already out, right? Huh. I mean, like that first statement to me is like, this is the one that Tinubu T- 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 and, and, you know, the APC are going to use to say, look, we want even the United States, the, you know, Shining City on the Hill or whatever uh, says so. Uh, and that's the end of the discussion. And then to come back later, you sort of, you know, it's, it it, it seems like it's, it's a lame attempt to kind of cover, uh, cover your bases. But the, the, the damage, if there's damage here has already been done. Would you, I mean, does that, does that seem about right?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think you know, and you were asking before like how much the US matters. I think I think the US matters some. Um and I think that the collective sort of quote-unquote international community also matters. So like the US matters in the aggregate in terms of, you know, if the you know, the UK, the EU, other partners also kind of weigh in, um the AU uh and all recognize it, I think that has a cumulative effect. Um so yeah.
0: What is the chan- the possibility of violence here, in your estimation? Uh, if the court, you know, the court system the challenge is probably not going to go anywhere. There is this sense that something happened here. There were shenanigans. Obi does seem to have been popular. In particular, I don't want to discount Atiku, who uh, you know obviously mm-hmm. has been you know held his march yesterday, but Obi in particular seemed to be popular among uh, you know some segment of the the Nigerian population, and yet, um. Uh, to, as far as i know post election there hasn't been any indication of people kind of going into the streets in an unorganized way to to you know ex- uh, act violently or express um unhappiness with the election result i don't know can you can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and the potential for for things to get get bad
1: yeah i mean i think that in a way one could say that the critical window has passed and that, you know, if there was going to be a huge kind of violent backlash that it, it would have already happened. I mean, and so in 2011, there was a, a really contentious election between Muhammad Buhari who, you know, now president, but at that time, the kind of uh, key opposition leader and, and good luck Jonathan, who was the incumbent at the time. And after that, the, the, you know, the violence in the North in Buhari strongholds was, was fast and it was intense Right. And and that was kind of, you know, a, a demonstration of how serious the post-electoral violence can be. Um, so this time seems calmer, you know, by far in comparison with 2011. I think, you know, the gubernatorial elections themselves on the 11th are are a huge potential flashpoint. And sometimes gubernatorial, you know, governorships are, are contested even more fiercely than the than the presidency itself in part because uh the governorships you know are really really important i mean i would say even stronger you know the the gubernatorial powers are even stronger than those in the united states um and sometimes the elections are actually much more closely fought so there could be there could be a you know state-by-state kind of violence on or after the 11th
0: let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier which is um, re- or two things you mentioned earlier religion and ethnicity uh One of the concerns I've seen raised about tanubu's ticket is that it was a Muslim Muslim ticket and there there's a tradition uh it seems like of uh splitting the ticket between uh, a Muslim and a Christian you know one is president, one is vice president. It's kind of kind of varies uh from campaign to campaign uh, Tinubu, as a as a Muslim, but somebody who is from the southern part of Nigeria went in a different direction. He went geographically and, Mm -hmm. and brought in a Muslim from Northern Nigeria. Um, But I've seen, you know, I've seen concerns raised about this, about what it uh, could mean for the uh, Nigerian Christian community and how, uh, what kind of response that might uh, engender uh, moving forward. Can you talk a little bit about this dynamic? And uh, I know you said Christians are probably a slight minority. Probably we don't, we don't know quite exactly uh, how much, but, but, Talk about the dynamic between these two kind of very obviously very broad communities, uh, and and do you see any potential for this to be a, a source of problems moving forward?
1: Yeah, I mean it is you know it's a different kind of path for for a ticket. I mean because as you say, there had been you know what what Nigerians will call zoning before, where um, the presidency had rotated th- between the north and the south and and between Muslims and Christians. And Nigeria is often, you know, described as having a Muslim North and a Christian South, but there's a lot of there's a lot of Muslims in the South, particularly in the Southwest. And then there's you know a fair number of Christians actually in the North, a minority, but but a, a significant one and a visible one. So yeah, the Muslim Muslim ticket, you know, and this was this was raised in even in 2015, there was some speculation that Buhari, a Muslim, was gonna take a, a Muslim running mate, but he ended up having a, a Christian running mate both times. Um so this is new, and I think it' I think on one level it does reflect something. I have a, a friend who's writing a guest post for me actually about this, um, saying that this reflects something about the underlying demography of the country. That there's no sort of Christian, you know, veto block anymore. Um, although, you know, I don't think that it means that that there weren't Christians voting for Tinubu or there weren't Muslims voting for Obi. You know, again, people's like identities don't necessarily determine how they'll vote. But I do think Christians will be a little bit um, nervous about this, right, and and about. You know the the feeling that there's not Christian representation in, in the highest office. As Tinubu puts together his his cabinet, right? There's um, you know a norm that all thirty six states will be represented. That you know in the in the ministerial appointments and so forth. So there's other opportunities to kind of balance things out. But yeah, I think it I think it makes Christians nervous to have to have the the Muslim Muslim ticket. I should say though, you know. Tinubu, by by a lot of accounts, not a deeply religious person, right? So sometimes the Christian rhetoric in Nigeria has been, you know, or from some Christians I should say, has been the idea that a Muslim-Muslim ticket equals some kind of effort to push, you know, Sharia or the the Islamization of the country at a policy level. That is not in the cards, right? Tinubu is not that. Tinubu is not a theocrat, right? So it's the Muslim-Muslim ticket. I think matters demographically. I don't think it really matters in terms of, you know, policy.
2: Let's
0: pump
1: Alex this is this is
2: on my brain because I'm writing this big piece on Ukraine and not to make this about the U.S. but let's make this about the U.S. how do you think this fits into the Biden administration's larger strategy which I read as essentially trying to shore up allies like what role does Africa play in that what does Biden actually want to do with this region Um, because they almost never talk about it in their major speeches like like you said said it's it's generally ignored, but it's obviously important, particularly vis-a-vis the the China rivalry mm-hmm. and uh, wanting to extract materials. So it's it's kind. Of, I, I, I haven't been able to get a bead on what they actually want to do with Africa. So just a, I, I, it's a little orthogonal, but I as long as we're going to a wider context, I thought I'd ask it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I mean. I, I agree with a lot of with with what you just said. I mean, I think the you know they so they had the the African Leaders Summit. I want to say in December of 2022, a follow up to a to a similar summit that Obama had had in 2014. Um, I think that it's pretty much just sort of for the optics, right? I, I took it at that time as as you know with with Obama when I was I happened to be at the State Department at that time um, and was there sort of on the edges of that summit. And now, I think that there's pressure on American presidents to show that they that they care about Africa. That's not just an afterthought. And so, I think both of these summits are. And sort they of like, love
2: mentioning PEPFAR. They, yes, they mention exactly. PEPFAR yeah, exactly. Yeah. like
1: ever whenever they talk about Africa, it's PEPFAR. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, and that's like a Bush administration thing. So that's a bit, you know, old. And yeah, I don't think any of you know, Obama's initiatives or or Trump's initiatives really had like that same kind of impact as as PEPFAR or even close, which is why they keep coming back to to that, I think. Yeah. So now there's like the follow up from the summit, but the the follow up from the summit seems to be mostly about trips. So I think the first lady was going to a couple of different countries, obviously, like, you know, different senior officials are going to different places, but I don't know that the summit really represents a kind of a change. And yeah, I think that, you know, I think there's some enduring tensions about, security and stability versus democracy promotion. Not that those always have to be in tension, but I think sometimes they are. Um, I think that, you know, African countries have not been on the whole as receptive as the Biden administration would like to, to messaging about Ukraine and Russia. You can see that in, you know, UN General Assembly votes and, and other places, right? And you can see that in some of the pushback that uh, American officials get, even from, from you know, African allies, I think with Nigeria in particular, you know, it's a it's a big country and it's a powerful country and the United States can't quite, you know, boss Nigeria around. Um, my friend Matt Page had a good piece for, I want to say, for Chatham House recently where he talked about a pattern where the US and the UK will kind of criticize Nigerian, you know, human rights violations and so forth. And then Nigerian officials will push back and then American and, and British officials will back off. Then. Um, and I think that that, you know, characterizes a lot of the dynamic i don't you know african countries i think on the whole don't want to be kind of uh lectured to or, or condescended to by the u.s yet here we are <laughs> <laughs> no and i think
0: you can they see they just that don't in, understand i mean america is the shining city on the hill like i said we're we're, we're allowed to lecture
2: it, i i i can i know i shouldn't say this but the solipsism of U.S. policymakers still is really something to behold. Like, I kind of get why Madeleine Albright is using the, you know, exceptionalist argument, America sees more than every country, whatever that was, 1998. But the fact that they still talk this way is just such a, an intellectual and ideological failure. It, it, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, I, again, everyone knows this, but it's just, it's really a, something to actually sit and, you know, read for days and days and days on end that they still believe this shit
1: yeah i mean and i think I, I think that there is an inherent kind of awkwardness vis-a-vis nigeria i mean and other countries right because you know when when the united states really sort of tries to lean into um you know influencing the conduct of elections and so forth then they get accused of taking sides right so the u.s in 2015 really really put an emphasis on you know clean elections and so forth and then they got accused by a lot of nigerians of having carried a brief for for buhari the ultimate winner right but then when they back off a bit you know then they get accused of of not caring i can see why us officials would would find that dynamic frustrating but i also think yeah i mean i agree that you know the the kind of rhetoric continues to deploy this notion of american exceptionalism sometimes i think in ways that are you know that 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 are transparently kind of condescending you know like sort of some of the statements with this election were like our country too has gone through disputed elections. So, you know, we can kind of sympathize with you. And I don't know, I don't think that really resonates with people um, in Nigeria. Uh,
0: I, I would keep on this line actually, Alex, as you talk to people who uh, are involved in Africa work, let's say in DC or, you know, people who, who are in, uh, You know, kind of especially focused on Nigeria. This is a country that uh, is projected to be the third largest in the world by the end of this century, if not well before that. It's a major, um, you know, going to be a major economic player, a major player in terms of uh, addressing climate change. What do people say about this uh, continued just US kind of mono focus on security and counterterrorism and then you know, to the extent that there's any shift, it's just viewed through the the lens of competition with China, or are you on the same page with Russia? There doesn't seem to be any kind of more sophisticated uh, sense of trying to deal with uh, with uh, uh, countries across Africa, but but Nigeria, let's say in
1: particular. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, I think that you know, there's a sense, I think, in DC of, of of disappointment, even kind of surprise. I think that, you know, at the beginning of, of you know, this current century, like right after 9-11, there was, there was a lot of talk in DC about the potential for Nigeria's collapse, right? And there were some very, very grim assessments of where Nigeria was headed. I think there was some sort of preparation within the intelligence community and, and within, and that's, by the way, I, I should be careful there. That's not to feed into, you know, certain conspiracy theories that circulate. I mean, I I think there's there's been the idea sometimes in Nigeria that the U S was was planning for the collapse of Nigeria or that the U S even wanted the collapse of Nigeria. That's out, I think. But there's there's you know the, the U S has thought through that scenario, and then the U S also sometimes has has had the idea that Nigeria and and this you know this has real basis the idea that Nigeria could be. A regional power, a partner in, in helping to resolve, you know, crises in other West African countries. And that's based on Nigeria in the, in the nineties and early 2000s when there were a lot of Nigerian contributions to peacekeeping and things like that. I think the scenario that has surprised a lot of people in DC, though, is, is the current one where, where it's just sort of years and years of, of serious problems that fall short of the breakup and, and collapse of the country, but that, that just continue to get worse and worse. So I think there's some some confusion there. And I think there's relatively few points of leverage. You know, I heard a story once, maybe I've, maybe I've even told you this before, but I heard a story once about PEPFAR funding, actually, and about, you know, the US funding that that during the time of, of Jonathan, when um, Okonje Uweala, who's now the, the director of the World Trade Organization, the director general of the WTO, um, that a US official threatened to cut off some some funding. And she said, okay, give, give us a couple of weeks you know, we'll move things around, we'll, you know, we'll change things, you know, that basically there's, there's not that much US leverage. And I think that's where you that's how you get to a place like this, where you get these sort of lukewarm statements of congratulations for for Tinobu, because I think there's not, you know, a perception in Washington that there's really that much that can be done. But I mean, tack on just one more thing. That's how you get to a place where, you know, in, in, in December, right, Reuters came out with this huge, uh, Exposé of of you know serious serious abuses. I mean, forced forced abortions you know performed by the military on on upwards of ten thousand women, um, and it made relatively little impact on on the bilateral relationship. It seems to have made very little impact on policymaking in Nigeria. Um, so if it's at that point where the U.S. has no kind of leverage or even real policy change in the face of of some of the most horrific uh, human rights abuse you know allegations that I've ever heard. Um, that's that's a bad place for U.S. policy.
0: Let's bring it back to Nigeria and talk about the legacy of Mohamedou Buhari, who is now the, the lame duck outgoing president. I know you've written about him uh, quite a bit over the years. Uh, Buhari was elected on a, uh, it seems like a promise, to uh, take care of Boko Haram, take care of the violence, improve Nigeria's security situation. Boko Haram is perhaps no more, but it's only because it's been replaced or supplanted by Islamic State West Africa province, which, uh, if anything seems to be going, doing just as well, if not, uh, you know, better than, than Boko Haram was doing. And, and so, uh, he seems to have mostly failed on that account. I'm curious, you know, uh, his human rights record, as you suggest, there are black marks there. What is your overall kind of, Uh, assessment of of Buhari's performance in his two terms
1: yeah I mean I think he's you know I think he's leaving office as as a failure um and I'll admit you know to 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 some bias on you know in favor of him I mean in in 2015 it seemed to me because because good luck Jonathan seemed to be you know really a very lackluster president His, his predecessor who was in office from 2010 to 2015 um and Jonathan had, you know, come into office in kind of a chaotic way because his predecessor had died in in office, and then Jonathan won this election in 2011. That I that I mentioned, you know, had serious violence afterwards. And Buhari, who had won as the who had run, sorry, as the as the main opposition candidate from 2003 on in every election, he seemed to be this kind of um, austere figure. You know, um, seemed not to be personally corrupt. And and you know I mean I, I didn't want to make him into a superhero at the time, but I thought okay he's going to do a better job than than Jonathan. And I don't I don't know you know I, th- I think that I think they both failed in office. I mean you know Buhari has been aloof, slow to decision making, um, you know serious health problems throughout his his presidency, which is now becoming a kind of a theme because Tinubu reportedly you know depending on what one believes may have some health challenges of his own, and so you get to this kind of structural problem where you have some of the top politicians in the country spending their whole lives to get into the presidency and then when they get there they're not physically even suited for for the job Um, so yeah i wouldn't know it. we wouldn't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are other parallels one could draw between nigeria and the u.s if if one wanted to but um yeah i mean this is really i think grim actually you know to have this like septuagenarian kind of you know dominance in, in both countries anyways I mean, yeah, so Buhari, I think, you know, did not make did not make progress on the security front, like wasn't able to put, you know, Boko Haram and the successor groups back in the bottle. Other parts of the country have gotten really out of control. I think the economy has been, again, you know, in really bad shape, especially for a lot of ordinary people. Um, Some of that, and this was, you know, what I was trying to say in the, the piece for foreign exchanges, and here I was drawing my own parallel between Nigeria and the US. I think some of it, Comes back to to unrealistic hopes for what the presidency can achieve, you know, in Nigeria or the United States. I mean, I think some of these problems are are structural, right? And they, you know, in Nigeria, I mean, to, in Buhari, in a little bit of Buhari's defense, I mean, you know, things like um, the the price of the price of oil, you know, COVID, the war in Ukraine, all those things are are obviously beyond his control. Even some of the security situation, right? The the ability of of you know, jihadists cross borders, you know, the, the behavior of the security forces is not entirely under civilian control. You know, there are structural problems, but I think also he could be personally blamed, you know, for, for not being a very active, uh, or engaged or imaginative occupant of the presidency.
0: Let's go in a little deeper, uh, to that and, and sort of your expectations for Tinubu. as you mentioned, he, he, may be coming into office with health problems so uh you know we could see him like buhari maybe you know even leaving the country for long stretches of time to to get treatment um and there is this sense as you as you wrote about that that uh, all it takes is will all it's the it's right. green lantern theory right all it takes is will and and a powerful strong president uh and you can deal with these issues but what do you realistically uh expect out of a Tinubu presidency and and how much can he actually do about the some of these challenges
1: yeah i mean i was thinking about this in preparation for the conversation with you guys i mean i think i think one rosy view one one optimistic view could be to say okay look you know he he seems to be the classic kind of nigerian godfather slash machine politician but he could maybe be credited with some real difference in Lagos, right? So I was reading an interview that was done with him after he left the governorship in Lagos, where he was talking about how he reformed the civil service, how he got rid of what's called ghost workers, right? So, you know, names, collecting pay without actually being employees, how he had this kind of demonstration effect where he would get, um, you know, trash cleanup or other things working, and then that would build momentum for other reforms. It's possible that he could apply that at the national level. I wouldn't expect it, but it's, it's possible. It's also possible that he did that in Lagos, but he can't replicate that at the national level, either that he's past his prime physically or that the challenges at the national level are just too severe to to kind of be that reformer. Some other sort of you know grimmer views would be the idea that he's he's primarily in the presidency to to enrich himself in his own network, and so it's going to be another presidency you know where the problems just continue to get worse um and then I guess my own view is laid out in the piece is that yeah that the, the structural problems are running now too deep for any kind of president to to solve them right that that it's going to be very difficult to to stop for example the military from committing human rights abuses, which would be maybe one of the few things that could change the the pattern of, of you know insurgency in the countries if the military could could restrain itself more you know it's going to be very difficult to deal with the economy and so forth so i uh, yeah I, I think I think it's possible that his presidency could look like a continuation of, of Buharis and of the, of the trajectory of the country as a whole.
0: And where, I mean, where could that lead? I, I don't think the, the the collapse of Nigeria as a state is in the cards. I think you've, you've sort of alluded to that. But, but you know, you've got a separatist insurgency in the southeast, you've got a still Islamic state in the, the northeast, you've got this banditry problem that Seems you know to kind of va- oscillate between more and less organized mm. activity in the northwest. You've got ethnic tensions between uh, farming communities and herding communities. Mm. There's there's all manner of kind of flashpoints here. Where you know if you had to sort of predict, and let's let's maybe make this our our wrap up question because I'm I know I'm asking you to pull out the crystal ball, but uh where where could where could this all be leading to it seems untenable to have this many uh kind of conflicts major conflicts happening all at once so i'm i'm just curious where you see it kind of going
1: yeah i mean and i i don't i don't have a great answer because i think that the you know the country can withstand more of i mean withstand in a sense like more of this than i would have expected right i mean you would you would think again a country with you know over 20% inflation with with at least three major conflicts going on plus a huge dose of of criminality and so forth would would be collapse but i think that like maybe and maybe this was the case for some of those early 21st century commentators i think the word collapse maybe doesn't doesn't apply right i think you know maybe people had in mind with that like something like the the 1967 to 1970 civil war where like one part of the country Formally seceded from the rest, right, or or sometimes people have talked about the breakup of the north and the south, um, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards right I, I don't think that I don't think elites want that if if there was going to be some sort of formal breakup, I think it would start in in the southeast, but even that it doesn't seem to me that there's significant enough you know popular and elite support and this is my own status quo bias, I guess, but I think that the I think the trajectory could continue as it's been going and and get worse without without necessarily reaching a point where you hit like collapse because i think that you know i think the elite of the country can tolerate a a substantial amount of 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 chaos right and insecurity which is which is visited not upon them personally right but which is visited upon largely ordinary people you know or or you know the middle class and the and the working class where that all heads i i you know I really don't know. I mean, I think already there's like, you know, it's a very patchy situation with pockets of stability, pockets of instability, pockets of, you know, places where people can, if they have certain advantages where they can, they can make money and they can thrive. And then there's people living in some of the worst poverty in the world. Yeah. Again, that's my own status quo bias, but I I think the current trajectory is set to continue and, and worsen, but without necessarily hitting like a, something like the the breakup of sudan and south sudan or something like that some sort of formal rupture
0: alex thurston thank you again for coming on the program and uh, i'm sure we will have you back to continue this conversation uh, nigeria is so important and uh, just never seems to the news the bad news unfortunately never seems to stop coming out of there so we will definitely have you back uh thanks again
1: thanks a lot yeah.